Well, all right, we're excited to dive into the book of James today. Uh, this is a book uh, that many people um, struggle to, to grasp and to, to reconcile certain things in it with certain other parts of Scripture, but we're going to see um, over the course of this series in the book of James that um, it all fits perfectly together to help us to understand uh, faith and a faith that works. The book of James is about real faith in real Life. James understands that we live in a broken world, a fallen world, a gritty world where bad things happen and where real sin happens and difficult relationships happen. And he shows us through his book what real Christianity looks like and he encourages us to live it out. Uh, He shows us that real faith works. Real faith in Jesus produces real good works that glorify Jesus. And at the same time, real faith in Jesus works in everyday life. It's practical. It has an impact on every part of life. You know, people have a tendency to put belief over here and behavior over here, to kind of separate the two, and to think that I can believe one thing and behave another way and and really think nothing about it. Uh, We have a tendency, you might say, to separate theology and faith from how we live our everyday lives. But James will not allow us to do that. James shows us that our faith has to influence and should influence every part and every area of our life. And in this series, we're going to look at James' teaching on topics like trials, temptation, um, hearing and obeying the Word of God or responding to the Word of God, uh, good works, words, wisdom, prayer, and so on. He, he tackles all kinds of topics and what the Christian life is supposed to look like in these areas. James wants us to see that what we believe should drive our behavior. Our faith should shape our lives. Uh, who we are in Christ should affect what we do in the name of Christ. Uh, that our faith is supposed to be fueling everything. He doesn't have a place for a faith that says, well, I believe something, but it doesn't impact how I live my life. James says, no, that's nonsense. It's supposed to impact everything about your life. So today, we're going to be looking at this particular idea, being steadfast under trial. Steadfast under trial. You know, everyone goes through trials, troubles, sufferings, difficulties, pains, everyone. Uh, None of us get exempt from this. Jesus, the Son of God, suffered we all suffered. In fact, we're all going through a trial right now together. Uh, Now, it's affecting different people differently. This pandemic has cost some people their health. It's cost some people a loved one. It's cost some people their jobs. Um, For some, it's affected much more lightly. Maybe it's cramped a lifestyle, but for some, it's affected more seriously. It's it's increased anxiety or maybe even depression. There's a myriad of ways it's affecting different people in different ways, but everybody's walking through it, but the impact is different. But trials are kind of like that. Everybody goes through different trials. Different trials affect people different ways, but Christians have a unique perspective on trials. We know that God works in the midst of trials. We know that God uses trials and difficulties in our life. Uh, Wouldn't it be a shame if we went through this pandemic and we went through it unchanged? Uh, Wouldn't it be a shame if we went through it and never assumed God wanted to grow us through it, speak to us through it, change us through it, do something in our lives through it, do something through us through it, that if we just ignored that, God works through trials. And so today we pick up in James chapter 1 verse 1. We're going to study the first 12 verses together about being steadfast under trials. So let me read the the first uh, verse here to you and then I want to pause and give you a little background about the author in the book. So James chapter 1 starting with verse 1, James says, James, uh, 
a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So I want to just pause here and tell you about who James is. And James was the, the half-brother of Jesus. That's who we believe wrote this book. He was not a Christian until after the resurrection. In fact, if you read the Gospels, Jesus' brothers thought Jesus was crazy. They thought he had lost his mind. I mean, there's one time when he's out ministering and they come to try to get him and convince him to come home. They're afraid he's going to get himself hurt, right? They, 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 didn't, they didn't understand what was going on, but everything changed for James after the resurrection. After the resurrection. And you can imagine if your siblings said they're the son of God, you'd think they're crazy too. But if they died and rose again, James is like, okay, I've got to rethink some things, right? He, he meets his resurrected brother and he realizes I have been brother to the Son of God, and his life has changed forever. He becomes a leader in the church, a leader at the church in Jerusalem. He dies a martyr's death, and he writes this book to us, and he says, look, I don't want you to know me as James, the, son, uh, the brother of Jesus. I want you to know me as James, a servant of God and a servant of not my brother, Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ, emphasizing the authority and the deity of Christ. And he says he writes this book to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, obviously hearkening some Jewish thoughts there because this book is written to Jewish Christians who were scattered about at this time. And, you know, it reminds us that it is, is this, this idea of this dispersion reminds us that this world is not the home of any believer. In some sense, we're all dispersed from home right now in the sense of we're a Away from our true heavenly home. We are of heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we live in this world in a sense dispersed from our true home. And these believers here, they are dispersed and they're suffering. They're experiencing the pain of a broken world. They're experiencing persecution and difficulty during this time. And in the midst of this, some people in the church had begun to bicker and to fight and to, to not live out the faith they proclaimed to possess. So you've got this suffering that's happening and this difficulty and it's revealing people's faith. And for some people, it's revealing that their faith is inauthentic, uh, that it's not real in the first place. For some people, uh, it's revealing that their faith, that it's, that it's weak and that they're, that they're wandering and they need to be brought back. For some, it's revealing the strength of their faith, but, but that's just the way these difficulties work. Now, James writes to talk about faith that works, and he starts with trials, and he wants to show us what how our faith works in the midst of trials. And so look with me in verse 2, and I'm going to read down through verse 12 now. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the, brother, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. 
So as we look at this passage today, we need to see that God uses trials for our good. James wants us to see that. He, he, he makes that very clear. So we need to see that God uses trials for our good. So we need to be steadfast under trial for our own good and for God's glory. To help us understand and live this out, I want to show you the characteristics of trials. And then I want to show you what should characterize believers who are under trial. Uh, in other words, how we're to live in, when we're going through a trial, what we're to do, what, what should characterize our life in those moments. So first, let's talk about the characteristics of trials that James points out for us here. First, we see that trials are certain. Trials are certain. He says when you meet various trials, not if you meet various trials. We're, we're always coming out of, going into, or in the middle of a trial. This life is full of trouble. It's full of various types of trials, some more difficult than others, some more minor, some more major. Uh, the word meet here uh, means to encounter or to fall into, and it actually carries the idea of this could happen at any time. <laughs> it's, it's so certain that at any time, and you might not expect it. There's an idea of that it's certain and it's kind of unexpected. You just don't know when it's going to happen. And we can certainly all attest to experiencing that in our lives. So trials are certain. We don't know when, but we know they're certain. Secondly, trials are diverse. He says there are trials of various kinds. Now, a trial, by definition, is anything, anything that tests your faith. Uh, it's anything that proves the validity of your faith. It can be a pressure, a pain, any difficulty, any challenge that tests your faith. Now, these tests, these trials, they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, levels of difficulty, levels of suffering, Various variations. And James addresses the following issues in this book. He, he talks about persecution. He talks about sickness. He talks about poverty. He talks about wealth. That's just some, this right here in this book that he just mentions that these believers are going through. And yes, I, I did mention wealth as a type of trial. And so all these ways, these diverse things are different ways to test, to, to prove out our faith. So trials are certain. Trials are diverse. And then trials are purposeful. The testing of your faith, he says, produces something. It produces steadfastness. The, the pain is not pointless in the end. The testing is productive. See, trials have the purpose of first testing our faith, showing whether or not our faith is real, proving it out, whether it's authentic or not. Secondly, trials have the purpose of strengthening and maturing our faith. The testing produces a, a patient endurance that allows us to be built for the long haul. It strengthens us. It matures us. It grows us. So trials are certain, they're diverse, and they're purposeful. And then fourthly, trials are temporary. Down in verse 12, he says, When he has stood the test, the blessed man, when he has stood the test, then he will receive the crown of life. When he has stood the test, then he will receive. That verse is reminding us that trials in this life have an expiration date. Thank God for that, right? Uh, at some point, they'll all be over. At some point, you won't have another trial coming. At some point, whatever we're going through, we won't be going through it anymore. At some point, we spend eternity with God in heaven. But until then, we face trials that are certain, that are diverse in type, that have a purpose, but that are temporary. So, in the midst of that, shouldn't we posture our hearts to be ready to to get the most out of whatever God is doing in the midst of this. So let's talk about what should characterize believers who are under trial. What should characterize believers who are under trial? Number one, we should be characterized by, by keeping perspective. We need to keep perspective. He says, count it all joy. Now that's, that's countercultural. Count it all joy when you go through various trials. God is commanding something that is against every grain in our body, but God doesn't command anything that he will not empower his people to obey. 
He says, I want you to count it or consider it, to think about it, to regard it as joy. Now, the joy is not the trial. Some people, you know, they misunderstand this verse. It's not like, woo-hoo, this is fun. I'm so glad that I'm going through this. That is not at all what he's saying here. The joy comes from knowing what God is going to do. It comes from trusting God. The joy is in the end result that's going to come about, which here is steadfast faith. See, you, you can't obey this idea of, of choosing joy and counting it all joy in the midst of a trial without keeping perspective and understanding that there's an end result, that God is doing something in the end on this, that there, there's something that's happening. The joy is not found in the trial. The joy is found in the work that God is doing. See, proper perspective that is grounded in correct knowledge is what he's calling for here. He says, yeah, you need perspective grounded in something that you know. He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that word, can, that word know conveys an experiential knowledge, not just a head knowledge. This is something we have and continue to learn. If you look back on your life right now, believer, I guarantee you, you can think back of difficult times in your life and you would testify, my faith is stronger, my faith has been matured on the other side of that. We all know it. We've all got those moments because God does this. It's something we gain, we learn about through experience. And James says the reason you can have a joyful attitude in your trial is not because of the pain that you're going through, but because of what you know. Knowledge shapes our perspective. And believers can count it all joy and should count it all joy because we know God will use the testing to produce steadfastness. Or uh, another way of saying that is patient endurance. And this leads, he says, to completeness. It's God working to mature us and to make us more Christ-like. The goal and the pain and the testing is not that your faith be weakened or destroyed, but that your faith be revealed as true and that your faith be strengthened. So there's this goal in mind, right? Uh, God's got a goal in mind. And so we have to keep focused on the goal in the midst of the trial. That's how we keep perspective. You know, Uh, The last few weeks, I've been watching this documentary that millions of other Americans are watching on ESPN called The Last Dance, and we're all watching it because there's nothing else on TV to watch. It's at all sports-related. So it's the closest I can come is watching a lot of clips of 90s and 80s basketball intermittent with some discussion intermittent. So it's, it's about the Bulls. And it's about Michael Jordan. And, um, and it's this like 10-week uh, deal. And, you know, I, I've really enjoyed it because growing up, I wanted to be like Mike, just like the Gatorade commercial, right? And so, but I couldn't shoot like Mike. I couldn't jump like Mike. I couldn't run like Mike. I couldn't win like Mike. The only thing I could do like Mike was stick out my tongue. And uh, so I did that when I played basketball every chance I got. But one thing that stands out in the documentary is Jordan's work ethic. That's one thing among many that stands out. But it's his work ethic. He was relentless. Nobody was going to outwork him. But there was a goal in mind. The guy was driven to win. And so he was working and going through all, he put himself through these intense practices and all these things that he did, this training and shaping his body and doing everything he did because there was an end result in mind and that was winning rings and winning championships. That's what kept him motivated. So he made a choice to look to that. It's very obvious as you're kind of listening to him talk. You know, in trials, the end goal helps us get through the present difficulty. And, it's, and you can apply that. You can look at it in, in a lot of things in real life, whether it's a diet or working out. People think to the end goal, right? Running a race. It's the same in trials. We know God is going to use the trial to strengthen our faith. We know he's going to mature us. We know it's going to come to an end one day. We have to keep that perspective. Keep perspective. Number two, pursue growth. We should pursue growth. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, what's, what's this mean? 
well, here's what he's saying. I think he's saying cooperate with what God wants to do in your life. Let, he says, steadfastness have its full effect. The goal is maturity, it's completeness, it's Christ-likeness, so you'll be complete lacking nothing. See, when you keep proper perspective, then you can choose to pursue spiritual growth. Many times, we're quick to look to escape the trial. And I get it. I mean, a lot of trials, we do. We, I mean, there's nothing wrong with looking to escape the trial, but sometimes we never pause to ask, why are we in it in the first place? How can I grow in this? What is God trying to teach me? What does God want me to learn through this? And we need to slow down. We need to learn to cooperate with what God is doing. That doesn't mean we don't try to escape the trial. It, what it means is we are willing to learn from God, from his word, and to walk through it with wisdom and to make good choices and to, and to, and to, and to pursue spiritual growth in the midst of it. You know, my um, youngest son is two, and when we put him in the car seat, every now and then he just decides, I don't want to be in the car seat. And all of a sudden, he can become just as stiff as, as a metal pole, right? And it's like trying to get this metal pole into this car seat that is too long to be put in this car seat because it needs to bend and to sit in the car seat, right? But he fights, and he's stiff, and he screams, and he fights, but I know he needs to get in the car seat. It's safe for him. It's good for him. I need him to just simply cooperate, but he's just decided I don't want this. And a lot of times, a lot like my stubborn two-year-old, we can be that way in trials if we're not careful. We begin to push back and we begin to fight with God. We're, we're, we're upset about the trial. We're upset about what we're, what, what, what we're going through. And rather than turn to God, rely on God, pray to God, seek God, some people get mad at God. Some people get angry at God. They, 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 they stiffen up. And what I'm saying here is avoid the spirit of rebellion that fights with God, that gives up and gives into temptation, that, that wavers in faith and instead cooperate with God. Don't go stiff and stop listening. Don't harden your heart. Cooperate and pursue the growth that God is seeking to instill in you. Don't waste your trial. Don't waste your pain. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste whatever it is you're going through. And if I could say to all of us, don't waste this pandemic. Pursue growth. Number three, seek wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, he says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. See, why do you seek wisdom in a trial? Because we tend to get tempted by our own flesh and we have an enemy named Satan that loves to tempt us as well. And, and if we're not careful, we'll make bad choices in the midst of a trial. Uh, your flesh is weak. My flesh is weak. Our enemy is real. And if we're not careful, when we get in difficult, tight spots, we can begin to look for other things and to look away from God, and we can begin to make wrong choices. And we'll talk about that temptation next week. We need this wisdom to not simply know, but to apply God's word to our situation. See, difficulties remind us we need God. We're not God. And we need him. We don't have it all figured out. See, trials should drive us to God in prayer. Trials should drive us to depend upon the Lord. Uh, when something breaks in my life, whether that be um, a device, a computer, or whether that be the plumbing, or whether that be the, uh, something electrical at the house, or, or whatever that may be, um, I'm reminded very quickly, I'm not Mr. Fix-It. I'm usually Mr. Broke It. And so I'm, I'm thankful for plumbers and electricians and all these uh, tech people that can fix devices and things like that. And I'm reminded that I, that I need them in that moment. And in a similar way, when you go through a trial and a difficulty and you realize there's something in your life that you can't fix, something that you can't resolve, something that you can't just blink and make go away, you're not God. And that you need him and you need to rely on him to get through. So you need to seek his 
wisdom. But wisdom's got to be sought. He says it's God who gives it, and we've got to ask him for it. You know, friends and books and all these other things can be good resources, but God help us if we forsake him for those things. Uh, We're setting ourselves up for failure if we replace God and his word with anything. We need to go to God and we need to ask. Listen, he says he gives it generously without reproach. And the idea is this. God's not up there going, when you come to him, I knew it. I knew you couldn't handle this. You couldn't handle it last time. You can't. By the way, you helped contribute to the problem. He's not up there doing that. No, God is up there going, I want to give you wisdom. I want to answer this prayer. I want to help you. I love you. Just ask. Seek wisdom. And here's the final thing. We need to trust God. He says, but ask in, let him ask in faith with no doubting. He says the person that doubts is like a wave tossed around in the sea. See, we've got to answer this question. Will, will we trust God in and with our difficulty, in and with our trial? If we don't trust God, we can't expect wisdom. We can't expect to make good choices. We can't expect to be steadfast in trial. See, when we pray for wisdom, we can ask in faith. We can ask in faith, as he says here, because we know that we're praying in accord with God's revealed will. He's told us to pray for this, so we're praying for something God wants us to pray for, so we can pray with confidence and faith. But we can also know that God's character is true and that he gives generously, like he says here, without reproach. We know God. We know that God doesn't change. We know that our God is good. And faith says, I believe God will do what he says and that God is who he says he is, so I'm going to trust him. I believe he'll do what he says he's going to do. I believe he is who he says he is, so I'm going to trust him. That's what faith says. But we have to be aware he warns about doubting. He says, do not doubt. And the word doubt here carries the idea of pausing and and wavering. It's not someone that's trying to make up their mind on whether they believe in God or not. No, no, no. This is someone that's trying to make up their mind on whether they believe God can be trusted or not. Uh, This is the person that can't decide whether to listen to God, trust God, obey God. They waver back and forth. It's, it's, it's the person, he says, who's double-minded and unstable. They claim to know God, but they don't trust God. Um, they pray to God, but they don't believe God. They don't take him at his word. They go to church, but they don't live out the Christian life in their everyday life. They're double-minded. They're unstable. They're flaky. They're going back and forth all the time. He says, this person shouldn't expect to receive a thing. He says, you need to ask in faith. Because the other person, the double-minded doubter, Their whole life's built on sand. See, trials reveal what we really believe about God. They do. It's not that somebody went through something and then they decided they believed this about God. No, no, no. What you already believed about God got revealed in the trial. Trials expose us. Trials lay us bare before the Lord. In verses 9 through 11, James gives what seems to be two examples of types of tests, types of tests that people go through that test our faith, and and one's poverty and one's wealth. And of the person in poverty says the poor should boast in the fact that while poor, they are rich in Christ. And of the wealthy, he says, they should boast in their humiliation, meaning that they realize the passing nature of their circumstances. They're not going to be, they're not going to be in this situation forever. They're going to die one day. Their money's going to go away one day, and that should humble them. He says, so in other words, the one should look past poverty to Jesus, and the other is not to allow their riches to prevent prevent them from seeing Jesus and from seeing what really matters and who they are in Christ. Both need to trust God with what they're being tested with. You say, well, if if, if wealth's a test, I'd rather have that one than poverty. Listen, I'm sure we, we might would all say that, but be careful what you wish for. 
You know, you look in the Bible at the test that wealth can be on your very soul. It's a test. And so whether you have little or whether you have much, it's a way to show yourself trusting God, being faithful to God, and that you believe God, that you believe his promises. In verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, that's a promise that you need to believe, that you need to trust God that that's true. Those who remain steadfast, who continue in faith, he says they're going to receive the crown of life. That's, not, that's talking about eternal life, but he's not talking about earning your salvation. He's saying only faith that endures to the end is real. Only the person that lasts is the person that's really believed, that has the faith that he talks about here in James 1 and James 2 especially. And he says that person receives the, the victor's crown because it's only promised to those who love God, the genuine believers, and that gets proved out as we stand the test of time through the trials of life. And this reminds us that this troubled world is not our home, that heaven is our home, that we need to trust God that our trials that we're enduring in this life are temporary, that heaven is real, and that our salvation in Christ is secure, and that Praise God, there is a finish line. <laughs> there is a finish line that we're running to, and we need to finish well. We need to run the race, and we need to endure, and we need to trust God, and we need to pray to God and lean on God that no matter what we go through, that we would finish well in the midst of this life. So believers, stand firm under trial. Be steadfast under trial. Keep perspective. Pursue growth. Seek wisdom and trust God, believing he's who he says he is, and he's going to one day deliver you. Now, here's the thing. The only people he can, who can do this and live this way are people that have learned what James had learned. He revealed this in verse 1 when he said this, that he was a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James learned and believed that his big brother, his half-brother, Jesus, is Lord, that he's boss, that he's king, that he's ruler, that he's the sovereign one, that he is God in the flesh. And that changes everything about everything you approach when you understand that you've trusted and that you know and that you're relying on Jesus as your king, as your Lord. See, when you trust and follow Jesus as Lord, you can have joy because Jesus promised you his joy in John 15, 11. You can have steadfast faith because Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. You can have wisdom because Christ is our wisdom according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.30. And you can pray in faith expecting to receive because Jesus is the high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses according to Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16. Jesus changes everything and Jesus Christ endured the ultimate trial of suffering and death on the cross and he rose victoriously from the grave. So that he can now be with you and he can empower you and one day deliver you from your trials. Have you trusted Jesus? Do you know him as your Lord like James came to know him? That's where being steadfast in trials begin. Trusting Jesus. Believing that he died to take your sin away. That he died for you on the cross. That he rose again. That he's Lord. And turning to him. Turning away from your sin and embracing him as your Lord and as your Savior. Have you done that? If you haven't, we invite you to do that today. If you've got questions about it or if that's a decision you're making today that you'd like to let us know about it, call on him in prayer and let us know. Or if you've got questions, reach out to us. You can contact us at info at gonorthpark.com. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to celebrate with you. We'd love to answer your questions. Believer, 
Let's ask God to help us apply the principles we've learned today so that we can be steadfast under trial. God has a purpose in the pain. We're all going to face trials of various kinds. Let's make sure we get out of them what God intends for us to, for our good, for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for this good word here from James. Help us, Lord, as we go through trials to be steadfast to be steadfast, to keep the right perspective, to pursue spiritual growth in the midst of these times, to seek wisdom from you and to trust you as we go through these things. Give us strength, Lord. I pray for anybody listening today who doesn't have a relationship with Christ that right now, Lord, that you would speak to their heart and draw them to yourself and that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, that they would call out to you and ask you to save them, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who's loved them and laid his life down for them and risen again. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word today. Help us to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.